Welcome to the Elemental Entrepreneurship Podcast, where we discuss the earth, air, fire, water, and spirit elements of building a thriving, successful, creative business and life. I'm your host, Sarah, and as always, I am so excited to be here with you today. It's been a little bit, maybe you've noticed if you're a fan of the show, that I haven't been putting out so many episodes recently. And honestly, y'all, that is because I have been kind of going through a bunch of deep internal shifts and I've been feeling a lot of things but not feeling ready to synthesize them or share them or talk about them Um, and I find that when I'm going through that the best thing I can do is uh, shut the fuck up and wait and so that's what I've been doing I've been shutting the fuck up and waiting and uh, if you know me you know that shutting the fuck up is not one of my strong suits so that can be a challenge. Um, but I do feel that I'm kind of starting to emerge on the other side of this more internal synthesis phase. And I'm starting to have some clarity about what I've been going through and how I want to discuss it and how I want to bring that into my work and what I want to share about it on the podcast. So, Uh, that will be coming soon. You will be hearing about it, but not today. Today, you're going to hear an episode uh, that I actually recorded a few months back, but the timing of this release couldn't be more perfect. I am speaking today with David Bedrick, who is a therapist, an author, a teacher, and a foremost leading expert, I believe, on shame and our experiences of shame. So a couple of content warnings real quick before we dive into this. We talk about um, food, we talk about bodies, we talk about body shame, we also talk a bit about um, uh, the Holocaust, we get into uh, different forms of oppression, and so if you're feeling tender and those are not topics you want to hear about today, maybe set this one out and come back to it at another time. Um, in it, we also talk a lot about desire, and we talk a lot about how we all relate to and understand and act on our desires or not. And I share about the 90-Day Sensual Movement Manifestation Challenge, and one of the reasons it is timed perfectly that this episode be coming out now is that the doors for the fourth round of the challenge are open right now. And in the 90-Day Sensual Movement Manifestation Challenge, we spend 90 days, a full season, a full quarter, three months together doing a very simple, very beautiful embodiment practice that really is rooted around helping us become the person who can hold, claim, and express our deepest desires comfortably and believe that we deserve to have them and increase any wounding or low spots around our self-worth or our deservingness that might make us think we don't deserve to have the things that we want or that it can't happen for us. And then to expand our, our somatic capacity, because I do believe it's a somatic capacity, for receiving, for receiving goodness, for receiving support, for receiving care, for receiving love, for receiving money, for receiving help. Um... And we work these things through the body, through movement, and it is a very deep 
practice. It's very simple, but the results of it are very immediate. And people have experienced huge changes. There are now many people who have done every round of the challenge and are coming back for a fourth time. So if you have never done it before, I hope you decide to join us this time. The practice can be done in as little as three to five minutes a day. uh, And it's a dollar a day for 90 days to join us. The link for that will be in the show notes. And of course, if you've done it before, I'd love to see you in the group again. Um, I'd love to see the group be even bigger this time. One beautiful thing about being inside the process is that everyone who's participating in the challenge posts time lapses of their practice or short videos of themselves in their practice with what they are feeling in the practice. And so it's beautiful to scroll through this page of seeing people just proclaiming, I feel held, I feel supported, I feel cared for, I feel joyful, I feel confident, I feel sexy. And then to see them moving and expressing that feeling, even just being part of that group is a really healing, joyful uh, place to be. So I hope that you join us. It's super fun. It's really easy. Um, But really profound. So click the link for that in the show notes. The other thing, a little announcement I want to share is that David is teaching a new unshaming workshop. And uh, I checked in with him and he said that this workshop he's teaching has a lot of overlap with the course that I took with him. He said it's about 75% the same material. And so I can uh, say as someone who has studied with David and learned from him and been in his presence as a teacher, I cannot recommend this class more highly. It is priced really affordably and accessibly. I think it's like two payments of $275, I checked. Um, It's a a really profound experience. Um, David is a really special person and a really special teacher, and the space he holds is really beautiful. And whether you are taking this unshaming work simply for yourself as someone who feels like you struggle with shame a lot in your life, or if you are a healing practitioner of any kind who is seeing clients, I think that David's framework gives us a really new, unique, gentle, compassionate, curious lens with which to be present with other people's experiences of shame and we all have them and so I think that that's really important um so I could not recommend David or his work uh more highly and I will link everything that he has coming up in the show notes as well and so David if you're listening thank you again for having this talk with me um this talk is funny and far-reaching and we touch a lot of different places uh you'll also hear a little talk about my cat interrupting our recording and why I think that cats help me learn unshaming around embodiment as well. Um, So if you're a cat lover or you have a pet, uh, check for that. And uh, yeah, I think that's all the announcements I have. Thank you as always for being here. Let's hop into this episode with David Bedrick. I am here today with David Bedrick. 
has lots of letters after his name, y'all. We have somebody very official, a JD, a DIPL, a PW. I don't even know what all of those words, all of those letters stand for, but they're all there. <laughs> he is <laughs> a process worker, an attorney and facilitator. He is the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology and Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. His latest book is You Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover, 17 Women's Stories of Hunger, Body Shame, and Redemption. About his new book, Publishers Weekly wrote, Bedrick celebrates the deep wisdom held in hearts, minds, and bodies of women in this powerful collection of profiles. David is the founder of the Santa Fe Institute for Shame-Based Studies, where he teaches and works with individuals around the world. David, thank you for being here. Oh, great to be here. Great to see you. Mm -hmm. I um, just recently took a five-week course with David and Simone Soul called the Shame Clinic, and it was really profound for me. I got so much out of it, and... Uh, some of you, if you're in, if you're listening to this and you're in any of my groups, I know you've already gotten a little bit out of it too, because I brought some of the learnings and discussions that we had in that group into our work together. And one of the most profound things for me was just the framing of shame mm -hmm. as a way of witnessing versus as an emotion. Maybe we can start there. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, the best way that I know of talking about it, best way meaning the, the way that people seem to understand is by telling this part of my personal story. Uh, it's just a little piece without a lot of the meat, but I grew up in a home where my father was, was violent, brutal with fists and belts and voices and stuff like that. And um, I'm making fists, I notice as I do that. And um, so that people could say is, is an abusive dynamic and abusive person and et cetera, and it was. And then what's often left out of stories like that is the, in this case, another parent or what I call the person who sees that or who doesn't see that. So in this case, with my mom, it wouldn't have to be, right? It could be somebody else. But in this case, with my mom and her response to witnessing my father's violence was either a denial, not David, you, you, you're exaggerating. Things like that didn't exactly happen. Or a dismissal, you're making too big a deal about that. It's not, don't, that's not really what happens. Or what we, they, these days we call gaslighting. You don't get your father upset. Maybe you've done something. It's because of you that you're being injured. And that way of seeing a violent event gets internalized. And I call that shame. So then when I walk around, so then, Sarah, if you treat me really bad, I think afterwards, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe she didn't do that. Maybe I'm making that. Does that really happen? Did I do something? Maybe I upset her. So I start doing the same thing. You could say that my internalized mother does. I internalize that same thing. And that viewpoint that looks at us and says, something's wrong with you. You don't, you make things up. You do things wrong. Things happen badly because of you or they're not happening, your perceptual system is wrong, that enters the person's system and annihilates people in a profound way. Yeah, I could say more, but that's a good place to stop. It's yeah. such um, a profound shift for so mm -hmm. many of us because I 
you know, I'm, and I'm sure you talk to a lot of people like this, most of us describe shame as an emotion, as something mm -hmm. we're feeling, like I feel ashamed. And yeah. when we separate that and say like, oh, you're, you're not feeling ashamed, you're having an experience of shaming, right? Like there's a witness inside your head who's saying something to you. Yes. There's, um, uh, there's a layer on top of your experience. So you're feeling pain or you're feeling sadness or you're feeling injustice, you're feeling slighted, you're feeling wounded. And then you're having an experience of blaming yourself, beating yourself up, gaslighting yourself, talking mm -hmm. yourself in circles around the experience you're having. Mm -hmm. And when we pull those things apart and we're able to, to suggest you know, you're having an experience of pain or an injury or a wounding and then a secondary experience of shaming yourself for yeah. the primary experience. And we could stop the second one. We can, yeah. right? Like I, I sometimes will like think about like, well, now you have two problems. Like the first problem is you had the pain and now yeah. you have the secondary problem of blaming yourself and beating yourself yeah. up. And the second one we could potentially interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such thing. a powerful shift. It's a big thing. And then some people, in many examples, shame exists without a person feeling anything difficult. They wouldn't, for instance, let's say, um, let's say as a child, I got sad and people said, you're not sad. There's no reason to be sad. Don't be sad. Sadness is happening because whatever, right? Because you don't believe in God. I don't know whatever they're going to say. So then that, that the viewpoint, I would start thinking of myself and my sadness in a certain way, that would be shaming. Now I could grow up and be smiling all the time and not think and not think I'm suffering at all, right? I'm not making it up. You could say, how are you doing? I could say, great, I'm doing great today and believe it. So you wouldn't, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be meeting a person who is apparently suffering from something like shame. You would just meet a person who splits off from himself entire aspects of his experience. I might not know that at all. I may just think I'm a happy person. Now my nighttime dreams and other things wouldn't show that show that way. You got a kitty interaction going. It's kind of dominant for you. <laughs> I'm you trying that, to make sure that she's not gonna. She's a she's a frequent guest on the podcast, but I'm trying to okay. stop her from making a bunch of noise. <laughs> oh, okay. But I'm still here okay. and listening. <laughs> That's okay. I, I I know we have a we have a cat interaction. Okay, cats are okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, you, you muted. Yourself. They're just okay. Not as good as dogs. <laughs> no, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking. <laughs> that, uh, uh, I meant, okay. Meaning that the cat's here, I guess is here. There's, there's uh the only options with, with my cats, at least maybe with other cats is like, I can let them get in the room and then kind of try to manage their behavior in the room. But if I close the door, they scratch at the door and meow. So <laughs> once they're in the house, they, they really own the place. Um, so when to, you, you are working... to take over, maybe you need to take over more. You need to be more cat, like maybe scratch at the door and make things happen and slam doors and stuff <laughs> like that. Be a pain in the butt. I try. I do try. I find them to be very, they also teach me a lot about, um, right. Like I think about their, their lack of experience of shame around their needs, their wants, their desires. You know, they don't feel anything about getting up in the, if they wake up hungry at four o'clock in the morning, they just go to the kitchen and eat. If they're in the middle of something and they just drop to the floor and fall asleep, they don't judge themselves for it. They just are unapologetic yeah. about their desires at all times, which is pretty brilliant to be around. That's pretty brilliant. You know, I'm, I have a Jewish background. I'm a Jew. And um, 
And uh, I was in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks on a pilgrimage and came back and been thinking a lot more about my Jewish story and ancestry and Holocaust and and the profound experiences that I didn't personally go through, but I know them in my dreams and my body and things like that, the way generational traumas get passed through. And I was watching a film showing the starving concentration camp bodies. And I was thinking, I think I'm, I thought, I think I'm starving at times. And I don't, whatever, I'm not super heavy, whatever. I got plenty of meat in mine, plenty of food in the refrigerator. But how is that true? And I started to think about all the ways I deny myself of things. Like I wake up in the night fairly often. And then sometimes I think, I would be lovely to just watch a movie. Why not? You know, and then and I always ask myself, why don't I just go do that if I feel like doing that? It's four in the, well, whatever, four in the morning, you should be sleeping, but I'm not sleeping. Well, you rest so you can be prepared for the day. And all the stuff that goes inside, we're talking about shame, that says, get rid of that desire that you have. Things that you're hungry for, that you want, they should be put aside or waited till later or not had or managed or controlled in some way. Anyway, just making me think about that. And uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm also a Jew. And, uh, and even thinking about that idea of um, that our desires are wrong and should be delayed and that our bodies are wrong and should be ignored and can't be trusted. I think mm -hmm. of all of those ideas as being uh, very tied up in Christianity. Yeah. As the dominant culture, right? The idea that like, you know, even when we think about like the enlightenment, that the ultimate goal is to transcend all of our physical needs and to just be, uh, I always think about like being like a brain in a vat, that that's our ultimate ideal is to have no needs and to have no wants and to completely transcend the the messiness and the fleshiness of the body and to be more godly and more intellectual and more pure and to push all of our desires away with the idea that like, then we'll die and we'll enjoy ourselves once we're dead, which is like a really great way to control people. That worked out really well for them. <laughs> Isn't it incredible? In, in the, in my book, uh, you can't charge your body by its cover. I interviewed uh, many women and 17 of them I put into a book of their stories. Um, I'm a man writing about women's body experiences and some women would say, what the hell, why are you doing that? Or would think I would never read a book about that by men. And I just want to mention that I always think it makes sense why some people would never do that. And I can just, I would just think don't, um, not sarcastically, I mean, genuinely. Um, but the book is really my listening to women and telling their stories and gleaning the wisdom that's in them, not me trying to be smart about that. I think I got smart by listening, but it's not my intelligence. It's the telling of those stories because because uh, I was committed to listening um, to people that had experiences that weren't mine. But one of the women said uh, she wanted to change her body shape and size and weight. And, um, and I asked her what foods that she loved to eat. And she said she loved hamburgers. And um, and but um, but there was she shouldn't eat hamburgers, right? Because it's you know, I'm going to gain weight. You know, I love it, and I shouldn't have that. And um, I asked her how she deals with that, and she said, "Well, like she worked for a big organization that had a cafeteria, so she'd go down to the cafeteria and she'd try to like eat salads or whatever things like that." 
I'll eat salad. And then she would eye the hamburgers and they would, I call that flirt, right? So they, they, her and the hamburgers would flirt with each other. Hey, I'm a hamburger. Oh, you look really yummy. So they would have this experience. And then um, she'd say, well, I'll get a hamburger, but I'll leave off the cheese and I won't have a bun, you know, because the bun, you don't need the bun for extra calories and things like this. So I said to her, let's make believe that I'm your diet program. And, uh, and you want a hamburger in the diet program. And you, she, you should say, I want a hamburger. And, I'll, and she'll say, oh, I want a hamburger. And I'll say, do it without the bun, right? Do it without the cheese, right? So I would be implementing her inner strategy, right? Kind of do that. And, um, and I said, now I want you to fight for having the hamburger the way you want. She said, well, why would I do that? It's bad for me. I said, well, because you want it. Let's see what happens, right? She says, okay. I want a hamburger. I said, do it without the bun. She says, the bun is like this perfect circular sandwich. It doesn't, and then you bite into it and it mixes with the hamburger flavor. So it's not the same. Can't you not have cheese on the hamburger? There's no such thing as a hamburger without cheese. You know, she says to me, right? And then I said, and we went on to a few more things that she wanted. And, you know, she wanted mayonnaise mixed with ketchup because the mayonnaise, it makes this special sauce. And she had this whole different things that she wanted on the hamburger. And um, I said, can't you leave off something? And she says, I never get anything in my life just the way I want it. With the mayonnaise, with the ketchup, with all the details. And it was so powerful that she found the place. Some people would say, wouldn't it be better to find other places to do that than hamburger? Yes, not so simple, but yes. But she found the place where she was free somewhat to say, I want it the way I want it. Yeah. And what she couldn't do in her life is she couldn't do that in relationship. She was married and had two kids and everybody else's priorities entered except for hers. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that she wanted was to go back to school and get an undergraduate degree. Mm. And that was a huge hamburger, you could say. Exactly what she wanted, but she kept putting that off. So her her diet program, if we can put in quotes so we can call it that, the first step was for her to get ham, whenever she wanted a hamburger for the next three weeks, she had to get a hamburger exactly the way she wanted it, an actual hamburger, even though she shouldn't eat it according to some things, I'm not saying she should or shouldn't, she has to get the hamburger and she has to do it the way she wants to, right? And then we had to work on why not go to why not go to college? Some people would say she should just do whatever she wants though in her real life. Not so easy if you have financial issues, if you live in a gendered world where a husband thinks she should be home with the kids. There's lots of things to overcome to go get that college degree. The hamburger could be done in a moment, right? The college degree is a conflict, a gender conflict, a relational conflict. Her kids are not going to be happy she's out of the home. She's got to deal with the motherhood issues. There's a lot of stuff to deal with to just simply shift it from one thing to another. Yeah. Hunger. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much in here and it's all so rich and I'm trying to, I want to like pick which threads I want to pull on. Mm -hmm. um, one mm -hmm. thought I had as you um, said that is <laughs> it made me think about Starbucks, which I use in um, a, a workshop that I teach inside um, my business coaching program. I teach a workshop about systems and programs are uh, systems and procedures. And uh, I use Starbucks as an example in that. But one of the things that Starbucks 
I'm not a huge Starbucks drinker. I'm not a big fan. But when you think about one of the things that they did so brilliantly is this idea of like everyone has like this very most people have this very unique Starbucks order that's incredibly customized and they yeah. give people this experience of getting to have complete control and customization of something that's in their it. day. That's they get it. to make all of these decisions where they're like, oh, and, and they become identity-based, right? This is my drink. I get a grande, non-fat, no-foam latte with an extra shot and two pumps of caramel or something. You know what I mean? Like you get to have this experience of- That's very cool. I never thought about that. That's, that's brilliant. And it's not just coffee, right? That like, and it, and if you have a day where- you don't get to stand up for yourself a lot or you don't get to do things exactly the way you want or maybe even just you have a corporate job and everything is systematized and you do thing according, uh, things according to someone else's rules and you don't have a ton of experiences of being creative and making a lot of your own choices and making a lot of stands that your coffee order gets to be this place where you express all of this um, personality and if they do it wrong, they have to make it again, right? Like they have to take care of you the way that you want to be taken care of. And they have to give you exactly what you want. That's brilliant. And That's brilliant, yeah. It, yeah, I think about it all the time because I'm like, oh, it's just this really interesting. A lot of the things that people love about Starbucks is A, that every single one you go into looks and feels the same. So you have this sense of familiarity and yeah. also they're going to listen to you and give you exactly what you want and and kind of validate your personality and your uniqueness. They say your name. Like, it's it's really smart marketing. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> You're making me think of my, my mom has been gone for about 10 years now. Gone meaning she, she died. Um, mm. And uh, she was such a pain in the ass when we would go to restaurants because, like, she would scrutinize everything. Like, this toast is cold. You know, and... and Take it back or this one this fish has too much pepper on it and it was it was kind of a drag when i was younger because i was being embarrassed you know because she was such a pain in the butt to the staff of the restaurant um but when i got older well first wife just look at the waiters and think i'm sorry i don't know why you got my mom today but good luck you know <laughs> um you know have fun but but it was interesting about her in that way is she really couldn't do what you're saying she didn't live in a life where she could say, this is not what I want. This is what I want. It makes me, makes me teary to think of it because she had so little of the deep things that she wanted, okay. which she wouldn't, I don't even know if she would have known what those were. I don't know if anybody ever asked her, you know, what do you really want? So, but then she had this place, like the hamburger story. She had this one location, right? Like your Starbucks, where she could say, this is not what I want, right? Yeah. I get to say that. And then of course it's annoying because it, all of that energy of not wanting of wanting what you want and not wanting what you don't want lives in one small place where it doesn't exactly belong. Yeah. But then again, I always, I, I learned to see an annoying beauty to that, like the power of the human spirit. You can't exactly get rid of it. It will be annoying the way it's going to come out if it can't gracefully live itself. Right. But it, but it still lives and it still, still creates havoc. And uh, I always think of that as being, uh, I call it squish and seepage, right? So it's like you have, 
you have five pounds of desire that lives in your body and you're trying to, you wish you only had two. And so you're trying to compress it, but it can't go anywhere. So you just squish it. You keep squishing yeah. it down and then it just seeps out in these weird, unexpected ways. And it shows up in these other places. And it's like, and right. Like it might not be the way that you, that you would yeah. consciously direct it yeah. if you were consciously directing it. And if you stop trying to squish it. Yeah. And that's what, this is where shame enters. See, because if I squish my intelligence, David, don't act so smart. Try to be level so people don't get upset and whatever it is. So if I try to do that, um, and then it's gonna then it seeps out in resentment or thing or daggers that come out of me, then people will notice the resentment in daggers and what I call pathologize that. The seepage, that doesn't look so good. The hamburger, that doesn't look so good. My mother in the restaurant, that doesn't look so good. It doesn't look so good. It's quite annoying, right? But then we then we focus on that aspect and say, that's a bad thing. She shouldn't be doing that in the restaurants. Let's get rid of that. The hamburgers, that's a bad thing. David, your resentment, that's a bad thing. And then the whole topic and what's underneath it, my voice and intelligence, my mother's, I want, they not want, this woman's college desire, all of that also gets put away. Her hamburger eating and the hunger underneath it gets suppressed. So the whole territory looks like this is something I should overcome because this is a screwed up part of me. It gets pathologized, that's shame. So then when and there's no discovery of what is going on in that restaurant with my mom? What kind of person is she? If she really could live that, I don't want this. What would it really look like? If I could really live my intelligence all the way, what would it really look like? If that woman could really live her, I want things exactly the way I want it on that hamburger. What would it really look like? That question is not asked. It's just left to healers to make her further reduce, right? Further squish, oppress that particular uh, desire or power that lives in us. Yeah, and with diet culture, that gets extra... Uh, compounded, right? Because the idea of being squished, the idea, you know, for a feminized person, for someone perceived as feminine, for someone in a, a woman's body, however you want to say that, to take up less space in society, yeah. to just be smaller, um, yeah. is a uh, something we're raised as as being preferable and all of these things about like reduce, reduce yourself, reduce your footprint, reduce how much um, of a shape you carve through the world, just reduce it all and, mm -hmm. and be as small as possible, as slight as possible, as agreeable as possible. Like all of it is connected to this idea you should be smaller. Mm -hmm. And that should word, I always think is the most important indicator that we're dealing with a shame or that something's in a shadow, right? That like mm -hmm. whenever like I pay attention to my own shoulds or other people should, right? I shouldn't have a hamburger. Well, who said? And what would my life have been like if no one ever told me that I shouldn't? And like, would I not crave this? Would I not obsess about it? Would it not consume me so much if no one had ever made it forbidden and I was just allowed to be a person who eats burgers sometimes would I, would I not covet them so deeply? Um, you know that you you the, the research says you would covet them less, and not only that, but that the energy behind your I want the, is the hamburger, and then the I want I'm free to want and go after and take what I want and grab what I want or ask for what I want. So it's the hamburger and that energy underneath the I want energy also gets freer and it's likely to move off the hamburger quicker. Yeah. Because you're, because, oh, I want things. I can take them. Actually, the hamburger was not really only satisfying. What I really want yeah. is my partner to treat me differently when I wake up in the morning. Oh, now we're talking. Mm -hmm. 
Because it's yeah. desire itself that gets shamed, right? You reach yeah. for something and your hand gets smacked away and you reach for something and your hand gets smacked away and then you try to sneak it and then you get in trouble for the sneaking and you reach for something and your hand gets smacked away and eventually you just stop reaching and you have the impulse yeah. to reach and you go, I shouldn't reach for that. I shouldn't want that. I shouldn't right. think that. Mm -hmm. I'm bad and I'm wrong for thinking that, for wanting that, for even thinking I should want that. And so many of us walk around never... Mm -hmm never getting comfortable with our relationship with desire. There's a, a program I run um, mm. called the 90 Day Sensual Movement Manifestation Challenge. And it is a, a movement-based mm. practice. Um, mm. And we dive into um, the components, the, the popular components of manifestation as they're taught are asking, believing, and receiving. And when you go deeper into that, that means the whole first month we spend getting really intimate and talking about our desires and how often mm. before anybody can even think about what they desire, they'll start telling you all the reasons that it's not realistic or it's not possible or they can't have that. Like just trying to clean, get clean and clear about what we want. And then the next stage is, do I believe I can have that? And then if it showed up, would I allow myself to have it? And really mm. trying to unpack that in the body. Uh, and very recently, I'm in a relationship. And um, have you ever heard of the New York Times 36 questions to fall in love? No. Oh, it's really fun. Me and my partner did it. So you just look up 36 questions for love. And it's these 36 questions that help Never you deepen love with anyone. It's really beautiful. And you take turns where like I would ask you and you would answer and then I would answer and then you ask me and I would answer and you would answer. You trade back and forth, 36 questions. They said, this should take an hour. It took us all day. <laughs> I was like, we are talkers. Um, right. <laughs> but one of the things, it says like, tell your partner something that you like about them, that you haven't told them you like about them. And um, my partner told me, you are so comfortable with your desires and just saying, I want this thing and then orienting your life around it and going after it. And I really struggle with that. And it's so cool to be around someone who will just say, I want to make a million dollars next year. And then how would I do that? And setting about it, like you don't seem to have a lot of struggle about mm. thinking about what you want, saying what you want and going mm. after what you want. And I was like, oh, I'm really glad you recognize that about me. And I want you to know I've been working on that for about 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> work. I did not start out that way. That's amazing that, yeah, that, that's that's a that's an incredibly powerful thing. There's a lot of power in 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 uh, following our wants and desires. There's a lot of power, not just the power to fight and stand up for ourselves, but there's a lot of power in the hungers that we have. The, we're calling them hungers, the desires. Mm -hmm. I think something you said was so powerful that like when they're being squished and then they come out in these kind of weird or annoying or undesirable ways and then we get stuck on, oh, that thing about me is bad and I have to change that versus yeah. what about me is unexpressed mm -hmm. and how is it coming out in this undesirable way? Um, yeah. The curiosity that you bring to people and that you bring to their work, it was something that really struck me in the shame class was um, mm -hmm. A, the level of curiosity and the level of believing that you bring to everything that people share with you. And I mm -hmm. guess... I wonder if you can talk a little bit about when you're working with someone on unshaming a subject, what what are the what are the steps? How do you how do you go about bringing that much openness and curiosity to the process? It's a really good question. There there's different. There's like I think I want I want 
I think there are three different levels. I was going to say two, but I think there are three levels, meaning different aspects. One, I call, I'm going to call a meta level, which is what you're saying. It's an attitude. It's an inner attitude, a paradigm change that, that pours belief onto what I'm seeing. That's not a skill. That's just a, that's a, a, an inner shift, a spiritual practice deeply for me. Other people might not be, um, but that's a spiritual practice. What I see is a bud about to flower that wants to flower. And I, it's not just a mental concept for me. I really believe that. And I've been treated that way enough by certain people where, and I've been doing that for 30 years where it's like, it's like a spiritual practice, like, oh my gosh. And when I do that, something flowers out of something that looks like gross or, or I'm going to use the word ugly because people say, well, that's an ugly part of a person. And the things that look like we would want to get rid of them, a certain something happens when I pour that belief of my own heart and eyes on them as people start to tell me more and show up more and they want to give me more information right so if somebody says i'm smoking cigarettes and i'm uh my mother died of lung cancer i think well, i wonder what they're doing and i believe they're hungry for something and we're using that word that they're trying to do something in that smoking and i could find out what that is that would even help them stop smoking if they wanted to but I kind of I believe in people at, at that level. I think that's always been in me um, somehow. So I think it just nourished it somewhere along the line by um, people who did that for me. One person, I'm thinking a particular man named Marcus Marty. I won't go into his story. I just wanted to name him. He, he's also uh, passed many years ago. His spirit's around me. And, and I remember him treating me in a certain way. And I remember asking him, he was a therapist and teaching me. And I said, Marcus, how, how are you able to do what you do? And he said, this was his language. He said, I believe in God where you don't. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you don't think God is in your depression, but I believe divine, there's something divine in that. And that really was his, his spiritual life. And I can feel that from him. And I said, how long will you do that for? And he said, until you can. <laughs> Until so you can believe in it, that there's something in you that's wanting to happen, that's wanting to unfold in those areas. Um, so I think that's the first level is that belief. How do people get there? That's a paradigm shift because we've been trained allopathically. I'm not only against allopathic medicine, by the way. There are, there are times I take antibiotics and all kinds of things and and find out things are growing that shouldn't be growing and, and, and things. But... Uh, but by allopathically, I mean to look at things as a as a pathology, as a kind of disease that need we need to get rid of, as opposed to an intelligent, meaningful uh, aspect of us. So we're so trained in that; it's so automatic. It takes people years and years and years of practice to stop that, like any other deep meditation or spiritual practice. Like I don't sleep a, a lot in like 15, 16 years that I my sleeping has is become less and I'm tired. It's not only pleasant, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm relatively detached about it, meaning I get along with it pretty well. And I'm not like, oh shit, I'm tired, I hate this. Sometimes I do that, but not too often. Um, but it's not only pleasant, my digestive system gets a little weird, I get a little headachey and foggy from tired. But when I wake up in the middle of the night, 
It took years, Sarah, for me to stop thinking, how do I get back to sleep? How do I get back to sleep? I should really be sleeping. Oh shit, I can't stand this. Why am I awake again? And that whole horror story, which we wrap around all kinds of aspects of ourselves, to stop that has been like a miracle. Now I wake up in the night and I think, oh, I'm really tired. Oh, I wonder what poems I would want to read in the middle of the night. Maybe there's something I want to look at. Oh, I love researching little things that I don't look at during the day. I think I'm going to look into something about tennis that I wanted to Like I have this whole middle of the night life, which is really alive and fascinating and I love it and I'm tired. But to stop that assumption, like here's the products, take an Ambien, I've tried Ambien, tried acupuncture, I've tried acupuncture, tried exercise. I've, I probably have done almost all the things one can recommend. So it's not like I haven't tried things. But if I wrote on Facebook, I don't sleep much, I would get 200 messages of, of recommendations. Yeah, here's how to fix that problem. Yeah. And no one would say to me, what's it like being awake in the middle of the night, David? That simple question, right? Like, what's it like? Well, I'm tired. What do you do? Well, you know. And then I, you would hear about the moon and you'd hear about the coyotes and how they howl and how I love them. You would find out I have this whole nightlife. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's really alive and fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's just one of the things you asked the bigger question about all the, how do you get there? But I'll stop with the belief part for a moment. No, I love that. And mm -hmm. just that question, what is it like? Um, is such a huge part of the work that I witnessed you do in the workshop that I took of just asking people, okay, what is it like, right? What is it like when you smoke the cigarette? What is it like when you bite the hamburger? What is it like when you send the toast back? What is it like? Yeah. What is that experience like? And as you pointed out, most people will be like, well, it's a bad, this is a bad thing about me. And you're like, no, 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 that's not what I asked. Like, what is it? What is the actual experience of that moment? It's like? so, and that that's so rarely asked. I'm sad. What's your sadness like? I have a headache. What's your? We're so rarely asked that fundamental. What's it like to be you? It's an essential. It's an unshaming question, because when I'm not having an assumption that I know what you're talking about, because your depression could be like having a weight on you that you would want to break off and smash, or you could, or it could be I just want to lay down and give up. It could be so many different things. But the assumptions that we know, and therefore I have an answer and response and a fix or a medicine or a protocol for you without having to get to know you, even 10 minutes worth of getting to know you. That doesn't, well, that's, some people say, that's going to take a long time. I'm like, I get you in 10, 15 minutes, I will learn something about you that'd be really helpful. 10, 15 minutes, not 10, 15 years. Yeah. You know, um, anyway, that's my protest about that, that sense well, of like, yeah, it takes a long time to get to know those things. It really doesn't. <laughs> If you're asking the right questions. If you're asking the right question, which brings me to actually to the second of the three things that was helpful. The second thing is you need a certain quality of awareness. And the awareness is like we, we like meditation is a kind of an awareness practice, right? I'm going to meditate on my breath. That means I'm going to try to notice my belly rising and falling, or I'm going to meditate on a candle or a mantra. And when we meditate upon, uh, an aspect of ourselves or a client, it means, it means it's like meditating upon them. That means my awareness is focused on them. So if I say, what's it like? And they giggle, I think, oh, that giggle is important. I, I notice it. Or if I ask that question and they close their eyes and they start answering the question, I thought that's meaningful. Or if they start using their hands to, to explain it as I'm doing now, I think, oh, they're showing me. So it's an awareness tuning that's not interpretive. It's like, I'm just noticing. I see, oh, that she's wearing glasses. Oh, she's wearing that coat. The cat is over there. There's a red thing over there. Now she's smiling. Now I'm moving. Now I'm fixing my glasses. It's not a, a, a cold analysis that makes people feel watched. It's like, oh, 
you're an information sending living sentient thing and it's constantly sending information and if you open your awareness to that without trying to fix people will tell you so many things through what they're showing you and again and people are rarely looked at in a way that says i everything about you is important to me and that's also incredibly unshaming for people to start to experience oh wow you noticed i smile you noticed that i said I'm not sure yet. And that you said, and then you said, let's take our time. You seem to be paying attention to everything about me. Wow. <laughs> and they're like, I must be important. I must matter. And those are very, it's a very unshaming experience itself. Yeah. Witness is so profound on its own. Isn't it? A lot I, of people say, I want to be, I need, I want to be seen. I want to be seen. And then many people would not know what that, how to do that. Yeah. You can do that. You just have to look and listen and say, and then speak to what you're hearing. Oh, I heard that. Oh, your tone changed. Or however, you do that in a way that doesn't make a person feel awkward. We're moving past that without the compassionate feel. But to notice those things. Oh, now I noticed you closed your eyes. You look a little bit like your head's going down. What's happening there? It's an amazing sense that people have. And again, within a very short period of time, if you pour belief and that witnessing on people they already like oh wow i'm here and i'm going to show you how angry i am how depressed i am how hungry i am how raging i am how joyous i am how proud i am all those things will start showing up relatively quickly yeah i've just been waiting for someone to ask i've just been, like maybe since i was a child maybe my whole life i've just been waiting for someone to notice and someone to ask in a place where i felt safe to share yeah. because sometimes maybe it's like well yeah, somebody asked, but I didn't feel like I could tell them without them further shaming me or judging me or telling me I was wrong. So I just didn't yeah. tell them. Or I didn't bring yeah. it out because we do intuitively, I think on some level, know when we're not in a safe, a safe space to share our truth. Yeah. And we're like, oh, yeah, you're asking the question, but if I give you the real answer, I'm going to get in trouble, right? Like that very childlike part of ourselves, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah, I'm going to get in trouble for sure. Yeah, I know on on social media, sometimes people ask me a question and I can tell this is not a question. This is some path they want to take me on. It's it's almost as if they're saying, you really think that, you know, something like that. And it's like, I don't like to answer those questions. Like, if you have an opinion that's different from mine, say it. But don't ask me a question as if you're just in. I'm just curious, David. Why do you think? And like, I can tell that's not a curiosity. Some people are. But I get questions like that, and like I'm very tuned into. That's not a curious person. That's a person who has an opinion, and who's not saying it, and they disagree with me. I'm like, well, disagree with me. That's okay. It's like David, I totally disagree with you. That's easier. But don't lead me down some path as if you want to know me when really you want to tell me why you think I'm wrong or worse, yeah. right? Or you think I'm I'm awful or full of shit or or something like that. There's a di a desire to kind of show off or like a turn on around like. Haha, -ha, this person thinks they're smart and I'm going to catch them or call it like, yeah. you know, you know, get them in a trap or show them that they're like, you know, you're like, oh, it's it's a squish. Um, it's, a squish. <laughs> it's a squish, right? Like there's right. Maybe that's a person who in their own life, they don't have a lot of opportunities to show that they're smart or they feel embarrassed about their intelligence. That's shamed. And it comes it's out really in social media comments. It's really true. It's really good. Sometimes I'll say to people, I'll say, you have an opinion. They'll say something. And I'll say. 
you're really bright. I don't get involved in the difference of opinion right away because sometimes I don't, it doesn't look like a enjoyable conversation, but I can hear that person has a lot of good thinking, you know, <laughs> critical thinking going on in their brain and they're, and they're interested. So yeah. what I you were going to say something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a life coaching client I worked with who revealed in the course of our work together that she was a troll, that she had an Instagram account where she just went around like kind of starting fights in people's comment sections and she would get (laughs) huge fights with people and she was embarrassed about it, but she felt like she couldn't stop doing it. And when we delved into it, and first of all, I had to notice like a lot of stuff came up in me that I had to just like <laughs> check myself about being like, stop it. Like you're out of ruining so many people's days and like right. making people upset. And, you know, as someone who's very sensitive to like, I don't want, you know, negative comments on my Instagram. And so people who go around purposefully being negative, I'm like, oh, why? This is terrible. And so I had to really pull That's myself funny. back. But That's when funny. I started asking a lot of questions about it, what we came to is that like, she's really lonely. And she wants connection yeah. and that negative comments get more interaction than positive ones. And that for her, she was so desperate for connection, for attention, to be seen, to be validated, to be heard, to engage with yeah. people that, yeah. you know, she was like, you know, I find if I go around and I make positive comments, like those ones don't really get a lot of engagement. But if I stir up a fight, people will talk to me all day and I get to, yeah. you know, think about it all day. And I, and I have something, you know, I was like, oh, you're just really unfulfilled in a lot of relationships. And this yeah. is a place you get to be a important, but like you get a lot of notifications on your phone. It makes you feel like a lot of people are talking to you. That's great. I used to, I, I'm very interested in social justice and, and race issues of race and racism and caste systems around race have been since I was a youngster for some reason, maybe because I grew up in New York and, and listened to people say disgusting things and my heart hurt about it. But, um, but for many years in social media, I wrote a fair amount about race. I still do, but it's a, a little bit less than it was. And, um, and people would debate with me. Some people would decide that, you know, I was a terrible person and they disagreed. And then I would ask myself, like your client, why don't I just delete them? Why don't I just block them? Why don't I just not write about them? I don't know. And of course, I want, I'm, I should write about, I should stand up for people and all those most ethical things. But what, one of the things that my wife would say, David, like you know, some of these comments, they keep you up at night, you know, speaking about being up at night. And I thought, right, something must be worth having me up at night. Is it to serve and try to make a better world? Yeah. But I learned so much by being in conflicts with people, partially how to take criticisms, how to be in more conflict spaces, sharpen my ideas because people were disagreeing with them, how to defend myself, how to speak back more. So it was an incredible practice. I didn't see it at the time, always, but I realized, wow. And then I would write big articles. Some of the things were so upsetting. I'd write an article and publish it on Psychology Today or or on Huffington Post, uh, Black Voices or something. So all this richness, creative energy came out of dueling and combating and conflicting that was very alive for me. And you know, lately, in the last year, I've gotten more tired of, uh, of doing that. So I'm kind of like, I think I won't do that as much. But I learned so much by having these great debates. And it drove me crazy, you know? Yeah. I used to engage more in online debate. And I think I think there was a window mm, many years ago, <laughs> early 2000s, where there was more veracity for actual debate. And then I think something changed. There was a, a sea change, a tide change about 
algorithms and the way that these debates happen. And, and what I started to feel was um, no one's engaging in this debate to have their mind opened or changed. So it's not a good faith debate. Um, that really like a lot of times there's this echo chamber and like for any wild opinion you share on the internet, you can find several hundred people who agree with you. And so then it, we go into camps and it's like, oh, all these people agree with this idea and all these people agree with this idea. And a lot of people, when they kind of enter into, especially comment section arguments, they're not there in a good faith intellectual debate where they're open to really having their idea changed. They want to draw a line in the sand and say, you're wrong and this is why. And then mm -hmm. all the people who agree with them will hop in and defend them. And all the people who agree with you will hop in and defend you. And everyone will have a day where they're kind of walking around like activated and in a little bit of a, a tense thing in their body and like kind mm -hmm. of we're heightened and we're upset and we're yeah. feeling all these feelings. But at the end of it, most of the time, it's not a good faith debate. You're not entering into mm -hmm. this conversation with me because you want me to see something and you want to see something from me and you want to have, you know, you want to go into a little intellectual sparring where we both get to have some fun voicing our ideas. Like really underneath it, it's more of a desire just to like stir up feelings of anger and dissent mm -hmm. and sharpness. And I'm like, oh, I don't want that. I'll have a debate with somebody where I feel like there's, a, it's a good faith debate. Yeah, I understand. Then we have a, you're implying in the in the unshaming view. Then there's a lot of anger and power that has been squished, mm -hmm. right? So then, then I'm looking for my anger and power has been squished, squished, squished. Is that how you call it? Squished. <laughs> squished. Yeah, yeah. Then, then even if it's not so conscious, then entering a debate with you online. Well, then I get to feel a little bit of that. Now, is that the best way to do it? No, probably not. Um, and and I'm totally agree with you. Those they're not good faith debates. But then we have a huge amount in the culture of suppressed power, anger, power. I'm putting those together because there's a power in the anger. I can speak up. I can disagree. I can stand my ground. I cannot be moved no matter what you say. So you could say there's a lot of that in the culture itself. And then we would love to get rid of it. It's part of the difficulty with the polarization political polarization people want have a read the resolution that many people have is we need to be less polarized it's not going to work because the polarization has an intelligence still in it the intelligence is i want to learn to stand my ground i want to be unmovable i want to punch you so to speak not well me not physically i wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't want to do that i want to hit you as hard as i can with all the ideas i have I want to be as fundamentalist as I can about my view and so that I never can be moved, right? And I can hold on to what's dear to me. The content is usually, of the fight is usually not so useful, but the energy that people have in them, it's so easy to see why the country would be more or less, at least in the US, more or less a 50-50 polarization, more or less, give or take a few percentage, more or less 50-50, which is kind of, it's kind of perfected in a way. It's like <laughs> two people, showing their power only nobody's saying holy shit you are a really powerful person <laughs> everyone's feeling victimized they're no they're not feeling powerful they wish they were right i wish they'd feel like i'm so powerful you'll never change me i'd be like that would be at least an interesting resolution for the moment if i had that experience of us right but because i don't i feel like no i'm still a victim being pushed around i have no power i feel in this in that as being one of the people in that debate right yeah either side politically for instance if you watch the progressive radio tv or the or the uh or the right-wing conservative i like to call it fascist don't tell anybody uh right-wing side 
everybody, and you listen to the tone, everyone feels powerless and victimized. These people, they're screwing us over, right? Yeah. And no one feels like, I'm a powerful person. I can't be moved. I know who I am. I actually impact people. I can injure people with my views. Almost no one says things like that. How come? In a sense, both sides are incredibly disempowered. The power is all over the place. We see the power, but it's not coming directly, right? It comes through squishing strategies, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. That's such a beautiful way to think about it. And I know that when I've had the most, you know, what I would consider successful interactions with people who have tried to fight me or bait me in comment sections, um, that it's, I haven't engaged with the fight and I have kind of been like, wow, you're such a powerful person or wow, you're so bright or, oh, like, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to treat this fake question that you asked me that really is a, an attempt to bait me. I'm going to treat it like a real good faith question and I'm going to answer it in a really open hearted way um, that kind of diffuses the the, you know, you're trying to mm -hmm. mm, like pull a string that's going to get me activated so that I like, you know, engage with a, you're engaging me with a snarky question in hopes that I engage you back with a snarky answer so that we'll fight. And mm -hmm. I'm, I am ignoring that part and just answering the question in a really generous way or like, you know, something where at the end of the interaction, the person was like, oh, wow, thank you. Or I really appreciate that. Or, you know, I had one recently where someone, uh, I, I, I dance, I'm a dancer and um, I was a dancer long before I was a coach and my coaching work came out of my dancing work. And so sometimes oh. I post uh, stuff on my coaching page that has dance in it. And someone who didn't clearly didn't follow my page for very long made some comment about, um, you know, a dance post that I made being, being clout chasing. And they were like, oh, this is clout chasing. Aren't you a coach? And I was like, well, that's not a question. Um, and I responded and I said, you know, I am a coach and this is a coaching page. I'm also a professional dancer and choreographer. And if you scroll through my page, you'll see a lot of dance and here's my dance page. And the amazing thing about people is that we can be more than one thing. Thank you for asking. And they wrote uh -huh. back and they said, that was such a resilient answer that I'm embarrassed by my question. I'm going to delete it. <laughs> and they deleted their question. <laughs> but I know there was a time for me when I was more, I had that same thought. And sometimes I feel like when people show up, especially online, mm -hmm. they, they might say the exact thing that our inner shaming witness says to us. Yeah. And we do get the kind of role play example that you do with your clients where we're like, oh, this person showed up and said the mean thing I say in my head. And now I get to have the experience of deciding, do I want to believe them and like take my Instagram down and be embarrassed? Or do I want to have the experience of, of getting to talk back to them for yeah. myself, to stand up for this thing about myself mm -hmm. in a way that ends up being healing for me? I had a, mm -hmm. an interaction early in my career where mm -hmm. I was really scared that people were going to think I was charging too much. And I had someone message me and, and you know, say the thing that I was afraid of. They were like, oh, healers should, this work should be free and no one should make money off of it. I know, this. people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, this is so great. This person is like a, an embodiment of my, of so my thing I'm most afraid of. And I get to now practice standing up to it in a person. And by the end of the conversation, she wanted to join my program. Great. And so I do think that sometimes those, 
those tricky comment section interactions, if we can avoid being mm. activated and instead choose to like to see it as a an avatar or a representation or a you yeah. know even just see the person in the in the emotion underneath the words and respond to the emotion underneath the words that we might have a an opportunity for if not healing for them healing for us in practicing having a different yeah, kind of no, it's very helpful a lot of i mean one of the things that's difficult and useful in in uh, friendships and in and in partnerships is that the person becomes a sort of projective screen for those things that we haven't wrestled all the way through like like all of us have many things that we haven't wrestled all the way through and um so in some ways it's useful to to imagine a partner is representing those things because then you can have conflicts in real time and work those things out or or recognize that you don't like certain things then of course the difficulty is it may not be all of them or mostly them it depends yeah. right um it may not be your partner for the most part it, I mean, they're assholes for sure and violent and abusive people so we, i'm not saying they're just that you're just imagining that as a projection but there's a lot of projection that goes on in relationship i know i've done it i had a mother and father i've imagined that my partners were some some aspects of them unconsciously or consciously um my mother who i mentioned before she had a lot of denial dismissal about my experiences going on that didn't really happen etc and one of the ways that manifested for me is when i don't feel well I don't do anything to try to make myself feel better. I'm like, no, I'm going to stick with this. If I have a headache, I want to feel my headache. If I'm angry, I want to feel my anger. If I have a stomachache, I'm going to feel my stomachache. And um, my partner, Lisa, she would be like, you have a headache? And I'm like, yeah, how long have you had a headache? And I'd be a uh, couple of days. And she'd say, take an aspirin. And for we've been together 20 years in my early years of my relationship. I felt like she was trying to fix me. She wasn't. She was just like wishing I didn't have to have a headache. But I'm like, you know, don't ask me about, don't give me aspirin. Ask me about my headache. But I had this whole big thing. So I had this whole projection, right? I, which was useful in the one way because I get to stand for myself. No, don't give me something that lessens my experience. But then over the years, I realized, oh my gosh, you know, she's just like, <laughs> she's just thinking, would the, maybe your headache could go away. She's not like trying to fix anything. I didn't know that, you know. So the projection is, is helpful at moments. But, um, yeah, living, being and, alive. Oh my yeah, gosh! Yeah, that question of is mm -hmm. the person, is the partner, the friend, are they willing to do the wrestling with you, or side by side, or to make space for it? Or like, do they yeah. have the capacity to, to kind of, to work through the, the layers of the interaction and say, okay, like every time you have a headache and I suggest aspirin, you get really upset. Can we figure out what we're both really saying? <laughs> I used to, I used to, uh, big memory relationship now. I used to say, I used to say to Lisa whenever I was eating something, oh, you should try this. You should try this. And I'd like give her a fork or a spoon or with whatever it was on that I was eating. And then sometimes she would say, I really don't want any. And I'd be like, no, 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 you got to you know. And I would be, <laughs> I'm exaggerating now. I'd be like, get very insistent about this, this eating, this, this thing. And, um, and then she would say, stop asking me to eat things. I don't want to eat. And we had a couple of conflicts about that. And one day she, um, I was giving her something. I don't remember what it was. And I said, you should try it. She said, I don't want it. And I said, 
this is crazy. Everyone who hears this, I'm, this is a, she knew I was playing. I said, you better eat this. I'll shove this damn shit down your throat if you don't eat this. And like, I just wanted to exaggerate how I was being. And we both fell on the floor and we were like hysterical laughing because I was dramatizing something. She, she knew she wasn't feeling like I was really saying that to her. And we were on the floor. We were cracking up. Like, where did that come from? What lives inside of me that would be like with this kind of insanity inside? And anyway, we all know where we learn these various different things and stuff. But speaking of the things that erupt in us, that live in us, right, that don't get a chance to show up. And and I mean, those are the kind of funny partnership and friendship misfires, right, where it's like I can totally see on your side you're like, I'm having this beautiful, exciting, profound experience of how delicious this thing is. And I love you. So I want you to have it too, so that we can share it and we can talk about it. And yeah, well, can I, can I take, can I take that and give that to her? We're at one expression. hour and two seconds. No, no, no. And then it's like, so on the other side, if you have this other experience of like, people are always telling me I should do things I don't want to do, or I grew up being made to eat. Like my mom always forced me to eat Brussels sprouts and I hate Brussels sprouts and as an adult I decided I'm never going to eat anything I don't want to eat ever again and so for me having someone tell me I should eat something like that on its own is really difficult for me and it's like such a you know that that's where we have those little mismatches of intention <laughs> like I don't realize that this thing that I'm offering is landing on a, a hot button for you <laughs> until you tell me I know it. It's hum. Isn't it humbling having being alive? I mean, having a body is humbling because it's invariably doing something on some days, you know. And if it's not now, wait 20, 10 years, twenty years, thirty years. It will do something that's humbling, you know. It will grow older. So and that's 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 a humbling thing I, I'm learning about. Uh, but the body does. Our psychology does. We project onto things. We get crazy. We have so much shame about various aspects of us. Big chunks of us are. Uh, one of my teachers used to use the phrase shadow bag. It gets put in the shadow bag. He said, it's in this big bag of stuff that you're going to go, ah, that's not, don't be too proud. Okay. Don't be too smart. Don't be angry. Don't be sad. Whatever it is going to be. Don't like, don't enjoy getting into conflicts with strangers. You know, so you pretty much, you throw all this stuff in the bag and you have like a little truncated clipped off piece of personality. Um, that's, that's the human project. And then we project onto others and we create, you know, enormous violences, um, Speaking of being Jewish, we create enormous violences out of um, out of the projections because we have to find something that embodies all the shit that we decide that is no good, is unworthy, is unethical, is ungodly, or whatever it is, is is toxic, is um, yeah, yeah. That's a painful part of anti-Semitism, racism, sexism, ableism homophobia, et cetera. Why care about whether two men get married? Why would somebody say you're ruining my, my, my marriage, right? Why would that happen? Well, logically, I don't think that's very possible, right? If you and some woman get married, my heterosexual marriage is not really endangered, but the projection of something invading that's undermining the very fabric of what I deeply believe. That's big shit, you know? And it's you, by the way, or whatever, or it's a Jew, or it's a Mexican immigrant, or, or it's a Muslim, or whoever it's gonna be. That's big stuff. That's really big stuff. Wow. Sarah, I gotta go in a couple of minutes. I, I know, we've been talking is... for so long. I feel like I could talk to you all day. I appreciate you so much. Yeah. Um, 
well, I guess if we're going to leave people with a final thought, oh, yeah. a final maybe exploration for maybe unshaming themselves, something simple that people can take away, what would you like to give them? Mm. Let me take a second and see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My own predilection uh, is to when I'm suffering a lot is to be in what people call nature, trees and rivers and rocks and mountains and, and earth, uh, direct access to the earth. It's not everybody's way. Um, a lot of people do their spiritual psychological work on a cushion in a room or in a journal. And oh, those are great ways also. And I, I love those ways. But I think right now I would, if I would say to people, if there's something that you cycle around, meaning you've tried to resolve it, get rid of it, make it go away, fix it, change it, heal it for months, years, or decades even. Name, identify, describe this thing that you want to go away as cleanly as you can, not as it's something I hate, describe it it's big it's my belly's big and soft and round and mushy or something like that or whatever that is my depression is heavy and go out into nature sit by a tree or walk somewhere sit by a river and ask the tree or ask the river is there anything natural about this does this live in nature something that i wouldn't pathologize because i would see the big roundness of the tree or the bush or the flowingness of the river or the heavy weight of the mountain is there something in nature that this reminds me of so i can begin to look at myself not as a sickness but as a thing that lives in the world nature we tend not to pathologize nature we tend to think the thing is the thing right the porcupine is the porcupine i don't say it's ugly some people would but some people say wow it's amazing got these quills and it defends itself we look at it, nature a little bit differently and looking at ourselves as a piece of nature is a very helpful process it's a self-love in a deep way yeah i love that thank you so much and where mm -hmm. can people find you where can people find your work do you have anything coming up you want everyone to know about in january um uh so i wrote this book called you can't judge a body by its cover and it's mostly focused on women's body image and body shame but it's it really has a lot to do with the practice of accessing and believing in somatic intelligence, the body's intelligence, it, the intelligence expressed by what it does, even when it's disturbing to us. So I developed a, a six month program. It's a once a week for four weeks a month, at least for six months, I teach live one of them, the others are recorded uh, that work through the book and have a guidebook and work through different ways that people you're saying try to shrink themselves look at themselves in certain ways don't access the intelligence of their bodies to help think about their powers and their gifts and things like that so that program is starting in in january again if people are interested in that and the way to get to connect with me would be uh through my website and it's david dot david that's not david dot david bedrick and it's B-E-D-R-I-C-K, like bedrock with an I, B-E-D-R-I-C-K.com. If people went there, um, then they would find course material and books and things like that.
Awesome. And I'll make sure that I link that in the show notes. David, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Bye. That's our episode for today. Thank you, as always, for being here and for listening to the podcast. I know there are so many things that you could be doing with your time, so many things you could be listening to. It is an honor that you choose to be here. Connect with me on Instagram at Intuitive Edge Coaching or join my Facebook group, Unstuck Group, to suggest topics or people that you'd like to hear me interview on this show. Have a great day.